Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Kerry Curtis, chair of the club's Environment and Natural Resources member-led forum, and your chair for this evening's program. Uh, we also welcome our listeners on the radio, and we invite our audience to visit us on the Internet at CommonwealthClub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Brent Plater. Brent was until recently with the Center for Biological Diversity's San Francisco office, He's now affiliated with the Environmental Justice and Law Program at Golden Gate University, uh, where, in, full, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am also employed, and is deeply involved with the Golden Gate, uh, Golden Gate National Recreation Area's Big Gear for Endangered Species, which he's going to tell about us this evening. So, Brent, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Carrie, and thank you all for coming to hear this presentation. I have about 40 minutes of... PowerPoint principles that I'm going to violate in the next presentation I have you. Several points about good PowerPoint presentations, which I'll probably violate. I'm going to make it up to you at the end with some nice photographs of really interesting endangered species you can find right here in your back, backyard. So indulge me as I run you through a few slides while I talk to you about this a couple of really interesting ideas, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area itself and also the Endangered Species Act. And I'll talk a little bit about, about both of those in more depth. Um, in the meantime, if you're interested in getting into the project even more, you can check out our website at www.ggnrabigyear.org. This is just a, a picture of that first page you'll see when you type that URL into your photograph. So, I want to talk to you first about the problem before I get involved too much with what this Big Year project is all about. The problem is this. It turns out that the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, the national park we have here in San Mateo, San Francisco, and Marin counties, has more endangered species within it than any other national park in continental North America. It has more endangered species than Yellowstone, Yosemite, Kings Canyon, and Sequoia National Parks combined. Now, within the entire national park system, there's an important qualification here on this particular slide, and that it's within the, in continental North America. It's in this dubious first-place distinction. There are three national parks that have slightly more endangered species in them. All of them are islands in the Pacific. And if you're familiar a little bit with basic principles of conservation biology, which I presume some of you may be, that kind of makes sense. You'd anticipate that isolated island chains like Hawaii National Parks, where you have Haleakala and Hawaii Volcanoes National Parks, would have a lot of very rare species on the brink of extinction. So the fact that we have a collection of endangered species right here in San Francisco in an area connected to the mainland is that much more astounding, that we have imperiled biodiversity that in some senses rivals what's found on isolated island chains like out in Hawaii. Now, this is particularly a problem because very few people know about this. Actually, the first time I found out about this fact, I was working at the time, as Carrie mentioned, for the Center for Biological Diversity, a nonprofit group that works to protect endangered species around the globe. And I was just trolling through some Federal Register documents I received under the Federal Information Freedom of Information Act, which is the kind of sort of nerdy thing I like to do with my weekends, is enscone myself in my home with a big pile of government documents. And I come across this astounding statistic. And even though I had somewhat specialized in this particular field, I had no idea that the imperiled biodiversity we had right here in our backyard was at such a high level. It's also a problem because the Golden Gate National Recreation Area is under constant pressure from different kinds of interests. It's not so much development interests as much these days as it was perhaps 30 years ago. Are those battles still exist in the Presidio Fort Baker, other places, but constant pressure from recreational, different types of recreational interests in particular, that want to do things that may be inconsistent with keeping these species around 
for future generations to enjoy, all kinds of things, some of which I'm sure you're familiar with if you're from around here, from off-leash dog parks to ball fields, low-income housing, all of these things, these important things that we want to address with our society. People turn to the GGNRA if they don't have an understanding of its important place in our biological community and try to convert it into other uses. And so the problem is this 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 lack of knowledge about this was something that was very striking to me. And so I talked to some of my friends who are actually get outside a lot more than I do and get to know these species a little bit and said, what do you think we should do? And we came up with a premise about this. And that is, if more people knew about how important the GGNRA is for protecting imperiled biodiversity, that it would be easier to sort of tone down some of the more difficult battles that the park faces in a constant on a constant basis. People think that's sort of a reasonable premise. Anybody want to f- question me on that one right now? Or can, is that, that one? Okay, we're okay. You're with me so far, at least. So they had one premise like that. And we also thought that these, and part of this, part of the reason was because these are, I think, very interesting, very good ideas that form the basis of both this national park and the, the law we have on the books to protect these endangered species. The Organic Act of the National Park Service and the GGNRA itself as well as the Endangered Species Act, two really uniquely American ideas. I mean, certainly the national park system is something that we can all uh, recognize as something that the the United States really came up with, but also the Endangered Species Act itself. We were the first nation of any to put such a substantial law on the books, protecting the things that were the least like us. It was a very interesting expression of really our humility, our our humbleness as a nation to say, we're going to take a little bit of these resources in our country and set them aside to ensure that these other members of our biological community are around for future generations to enjoy. Very good ideas. At least I think so. And I'm going to try and convince you of that with the rest of this presentation. So before we get too far, we need to define our terms. When I'm talking about endangered species in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, what I'm talking about is a very, very specific definition of that term, and we're talking about the legal definition under the Federal Endangered Species Act. So the statistic of these 33 endangered species, this means any species of fish, wildlife, or plants, or any distinct population segment of vertebrate fish or wildlife listed under the Federal Endangered Species Act as either endangered or threatened. They're collectively referred to as endangered species, particularly in this talk, but generally in in most people's terms. So this does not include, for example, species you can find in the GGNRA that are not federally protected, but are protected under state law, like bank swallows, for example, or one one critter that would fall along those lines, or species that may be just locally rare and are on other kinds of biodiversity lists that maybe the California Native Plant Society puts together or the United Nations or the IUCN. We're not talking about those lists. We're talking about the specific list under the Federal Endangered Species Act. I also want to talk to you a little bit about the park itself and define that. It turns out that the Golden Gate National Recreation Area is probably a lot bigger than you think because When we talk about the park, we're talking about its legislative boundary. When Congress created this national park, they had a lot of foresight, and they recognized that there were places that had contiguous habitat that the federal government didn't own at the time, but there may be some development pressure in the future that would would sort of get the park interested in acquiring those lands in the future. So they drew a legislative boundary that was much larger than the areas you may be familiar with in the the park, Um, not just Alcatraz and the Marin Headlands and Ocean Beach and Fort Funston and Maury Point, but many other areas. This is actually a map of the, in, of the entire GGNRA legislative history. I'm sorry, legislative boundary. And what you'll see on this map is that most of this green area is, in fact, the national park. So you'll see it extends all the way down here from the really recent acquire, um, uh, recently acquired areas like the Flieger Estate and also uh, portions of Edgewood County Park in San Mateo County. This is all the San Francisco watershed lands. All of that is within the Golden Gate National Recreation Area's legislative boundary. Up along the coast of San Francisco to include uh, Fort Funston, Ocean Beach, Land's End, etc., the Presidio, also uh, Chrissy Field over here. And then all the way up along Tama- this little bit over here by Tamales Bay. And all these lands on the east side of Point Reyes National Seashore. 
All of that is part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. Each space may have a slightly different management arrangement or maybe even, as I mentioned, not owned by the park yet, but it's all with, considered within the park, and these are the areas we're talking about where you can find this incredible diversity of endangered species. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why, why we have so many endangered species in, the, in the, this particular national park, and some of it may be obvious, but some of it you may not already know. It turns out that the Bay Area is incredibly important in terms of its biological diversity. It's considered one of six hotspots of rarity in the United States by the Nature Conservancy. You can see some of these on the map here. There's the Bay Area here. There's a couple others in California and Southern California, parts of the Appalachian Mountains. You have the Florida Everglades. These are some of the most important areas for species diversity anywhere in our nation. It's also considered the floristic province which, within which we lie, which is called the California Floristic Province, which generally this area around here that I'm circling, considered the eighth most important biological diversity hotspot in the world. The, the UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, recognized the importance of the Bay Area and designated portions of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area as a biosphere reserve. Now, this is the same status is granted to the central Amazon rainforest, for example. Incredibly important area for biological diversity, we have 33 listed species, endangered species, in the park. And all of this is, of course, part of the reason. It just is a biologically important area. But it, the other reason we have so many endangered species is because it's been so heavily urbanized. So in some ways, the statistic about comparing the endangered species we have in the GGNRA to those in Yosemite and Yellowstone is a little bit unfair because those parks haven't faced the same kind of development pressure as we have here in the Bay Area. But that urbanization combining and colliding with the incredible native biodiversity we have in this area is what's given, us, given rise to this really large number of endangered species. Now, as I mentioned that already, I want to ask you guys a, a question about that, though, before we go any further and say, well, who cares? So what? if we have so many endangered species. In fact, most of you, perhaps, if my premise is correct, didn't know about this until you heard about this talk, perhaps. Some of you may have. And it probably hadn't affected your life one bit. So who cares if we have so many endangered species in the National Park? What's the big de deal? Who cares if they go extinct? Does it really even matter? Well, there's a couple of reasons we can, that I'll get into that Congress thought might matter when it passed the Endangered Species Act and also the National Park Service. But I want to leave you with one thought about why it's a big idea, because extinction itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, extinction is intertwined with evolution, after all, the way death is intertwined with life. It's something that's happened throughout our biological history. So it isn't the extinction phenomenon alone that we're concerned about but it's the rate of extinction. That is the thing that is really problematic and gives rise to even maps like this, why people bother to map these things out. We are in the middle of a mass extinction crisis around the globe. There are species going extinct at an incredibly high rate. Um, perhaps one to 100 species are going extinct every year. There's a lot of variation in that number in part because scientists haven't even described all the species of life on the planet yet. So there's a little bit of uncertainty in just how many we're losing on a daily or annual basis. And this extinction crisis is essentially unmatched in the geologic record. And we're the cause of it. The reason these species are going extinct is because as we grow, our population grows, our consumptive patterns grow, we take more of these resources that were once left for other species to survive upon. And that, I think, is the ultimate moral question that we'll, we have. And the big year tries to explore is, how are we going to leave enough space behind for these other species to be around for future generations to enjoy? What I have here is a collection of photographs of the 33 endangered species you can find in the GGNRA. It's a fascinating array of wonderfully interesting species that you're going to want to get to know. We have the most beautiful serpent in North America, the San Francisco garter snake, right there in the middle of the slide. Beautiful serpent with these really interesting black, green, and red racing stripes, endemic to the San Mateo, and, uh, San Mateo County in the San Francisco Peninsula, on the brink of extinction. The California red-legged frog over here, the largest native frog in the West, made famous by Mark Twain's story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, some of you may have heard of, 
essentially extirpated from Calaveras County at this point, maybe one population left. Somewhat easy to find in the scheme of things around the Bay Area because it's one of its last holdouts for the species. Uh, 70% of its historic range has already been destroyed. The Bay Area is one of the last pockets. The California least tern, our smallest tern, a beautiful little bird. The uh, western snowy plover up here in the upper left corner, I'll talk to you more about that. Success stories like the brown pelican, spotted owl, stellar sea lion, Many plants, 11 of the 33 species are plants. That includes Presidio clarkia up here in the right corner. We have the marin dwarf flax and the, the white rayed pentakita, the San Mateo thornmint, which there's one population left in the world, and the raven's manzanita, one individual plant left anywhere on the planet. I'll talk to you some more about that. Marble murrelet, a very interesting array of wonderful species, and I'll talk a little bit more about some of those later on. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about this idea of the endangered species big year we came up with. The idea is that we wanted to create a fun and interesting way for people to establish relationships with all of these species while helping them recover. Now, are folks here familiar with the concept of a big year? Have you heard this term before? Few of you, but not all. So indulge me as I explain it. The big year is a concept that, as far as I'm aware, competitive birders first came up with. And what, this, what they would do is they would create a, um, they would try and go out and see as many bird species as they possibly could within a year and have a com- competition to see who could see the most. And this always struck me as a somewhat interesting way to create a relationship with these different species out there, but was missing this element of, conversation, of con- conservation. We would just go out and look at these species, check them off a list, and move on to the next step. We wanted people to find out more about these endangered species and explore the Golden Gate National Recreation Area while they were doing so, but we also wanted them to take it to the next level and actually do something to help these species recover. So we created the GGNRA Endangered Species Big Year. We have a checklist of the 33 endangered species that can be found in the park. Many of you should have one already. There's more in the back if you need one. But also a checklist of 33 specific things you can do to help those species recover. So it's a competition to do two things. See the species, help them recover. By the end of the year, the person who sees the most species and helps save the most species is going to be declared the winner of the big year, and we'll have some prizes to give out. So we have dozens of organized trips throughout 2008 to help people explore this, the park and take part in, in restoration act activities throughout the Bay Area, not just the GGNRA. You can find out more about the entire list of species in the checklist on our website. Here it is again. All right, so some of you may be wondering, all right, so here's an idea. Why are you doing this now? Why are you bugging us now? Well, I have to be honest with you, actually, part of the reason we came up with it for this year is because we thought of it in 2007. So part of it was we just had the brainstorm last year, but part of it was there were also some really interesting and compelling stories to tell about the endangered species that are found in the park this year. The brown pelican, for example, is essentially a recovered species ubiquitous around the GGNRA during the right time of year. It's likely to come off the list of endangered species this year. Great story to tell about that species. To the ravens manzanita, as I mentioned, there's one individual left, and there's one researcher in the park, which I'll talk to you some more about, who has perhaps the last chance to try and get that species to reproduce. There's also great issues to discuss this year, from the creation of the park itself and how we intend to manage it in the future. The park's management plan is up for public comment, for example, over throughout this year. Uh, And the Endangered Species Act itself is under constant pressure, and there's always something to discuss in Congress about the Endangered Species Act. Also, there are some really important and interesting natural history things that we anticipated would happen in 2008. So, for example, coho salmon tend to run in three-year cycles. So the coho that will be coming upstream this year were last in the park or laid in the park in 2005, and then the ones that are laid this year will come back in 2011, for example. Unfortunately... This, in 2005, they had a very large run of coho, so they were anticipating that this year would be even larger. We went out looking for coho this past weekend with the big year trip, and we've seen no spawners yet to date. So part of the other lesson of the endangered species big year is even despite our best planning and our best hopes, these species are so close to the brink of extinction that there isn't a guarantee that you'll get a chance to see them or maybe even help save them if they don't even show up as anticipated. There's still a little bit of time left to add to that number of spawning coho, but uh, usually it's by the end of January they've finished running, so it's a very 
difficult time for folks managing fish in the, in the GGNRA. All right. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Golden Gate National Recreation Area and explain why I think it's such a good idea. The GGNRA is often, sometimes thought of by people as being a recreation area that is distinct from the national park system. That the, the laws that apply to Yellowstone and Yosemite and other parts of the National Park Service just don't apply here because it's so close to an urban environment. Well, if you take a look at the legislative history that created the national park, you get a very different story. Legislative history are essentially the notes that Congress put together when it's passing a law, and courts can look or lawyers or anyone can look to the legislative history 10, 20 years down the line to try and understand more clearly what the laws in the books actually mean, sort of like a Cliff Notes version of what's inside the legislature's mind. And if you look at this legislative history, you find a very different story than you might hear from folks who would like to turn the national park into a more heavily and intensively used recreational area. You find language where Congress sa says that the very purpose of the GGNRA was to bring the values of the national park system closer to where people can access them. At the time the park was created, it was becoming very evident that the people who were able and willing to travel long distances to go to places like Yellowstone and Yosemite weren't necessarily reflective of the larger population of people in the United States. And Congress wanted to do something about that. They said, these are really interesting ideas, and it's a problem that we're having access barriers. Let's change this not by shipping people out to the parks, but bringing those values and those preservation values closer to people. And in the Bay Area in particular, Congress said in the legislative history that even Point Reyes National Seashore was just too far away to accomplish that. Point Reyes was established before the GGNRA. We needed to do something even more connected to the urban environment. And so the GGNRA had this very specific mandate about bringing these different kinds of recreational opportunities and the values of the national park system into the collection of public lands that the, G that the Bay Area was already lucky enough to have, but just needed a slightly different type of opportunity um, available to them. So the GGNRA was created on, the, on this premise, and it, I think in many ways is a very fascinating idea. It's still somewhat unique. There's some other urban national parks across the country, uh, Gateway National Park in New York and New Jersey. There's some national parks just outside the Tucson area, which are relatively accessible. But still, nothing with such an express ideal of trying to bring these experiences closer to where people can find them, even within the range of, of public transportation. So the GGNRA itself is something interesting that we can, when we're fortunate enough to have, and protecting these landscapes around us that make the Bay Area as beautiful of a place to live as it is. Now, does anybody recognize, uh, well, this is a giveaway. This is the Endangered Species Act right here. Let me ask, does anybody know who actually signed the Endangered Species Act into law? Richard Nixon. I've heard it. There he is. Tricky Dick Nixon, the man who, uh, to commune with nature, used to walk down San Francisco and California beaches in his business suit with his hands in his pockets, not exactly sort of intuitively an environmental person, but nonetheless probably our most important environmental president, with the possible exception of another Republican, Teddy Roosevelt, signed most of our environmental, books, uh, environmental laws on the books from the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, etc. The Endangered Species Act, somewhat maligned statute. Some of you, maybe some of you have heard people complaining about the strictures of the Endangered Species Act. A few of you, perhaps. Taking, uh, you, sometimes you even hear people say that Congress couldn't have possibly known what it was doing when it passed the Endangered Species Act because you usually hear this from some project proponent who has some vested project that he's interested in. Well, if Congress would have known about my project, there's no way they would have passed this law. Because my project is so important, or perfect, or really good. There's sort of this blindfold mentality. Well, if you take a look at the legislative history again about the Endangered Species Act, Congress was very clear and very eloquent about what it was trying to do in preserving endangered species. And it wrote some things that I think are unbelievably beautiful for legislation and things that seem hard to believe could ever be passed by Congress today. I'll just share some of these thoughts that Congress had about preserving endangered species. Now, they had sort of two prongs, two reasons that Congress wanted to protect endangered species. The first reason was really a moral reason. Congress said the disappearance of a species, as we've discussed, is by no means a current phenomenon, nor is it an occasion for terror or panic, because it's a natural phenomenon. Extinctions occur. 
That alone isn't the problem. However, they said it's a time and occasion for caution, self-searching and understanding. A certain humility and a sense of urgency seem indicated. In the legislative history, Congress put this down on paper. Can you imagine someone getting elected on a platform like this, let alone actually putting it into law in a day and age like today? Humility, humbleness as a component of how we relate to these other species, a moral reason for keeping these species around. And the reason it's our moral responsibility isn't just because Congress wrote it down, but the very, the very fact that we can contemplate the moral consequence of pushing another species to the brink of extinction is in a, of itself a responsibility that we have that other species don't hold. So they certainly, as far as we know, anyways, can't think about these concepts as thoroughly as we can. Wonderfully beautiful thing. But Congress was also somewhat practical about why they wanted to keep these species around. They said from the most narrow possible points of view, so moving down from this broad moral thought to a more narrow, self-interested point of view, it's in the best interest of mankind to minimize the losses of genetic variations, right? Folks around here are familiar with these, these ideas. It's a simple reason they're potential resources. They're keys to puzzles which we cannot solve and may provide answers to questions we haven't yet learned to ask. And there's a lot of different examples of this. This is the canary in the coal mine, uh, often almost trite example of why we need to keep these species around these days. But even uh, while I was at the Center for Biological Diversity, for example, we had a very apparent example of this. There were some... uh, there's uh, several species of what they call Hawaiian picture wings, some species that we were working on at the time that are on the brink of extinction. They're similar to fruit flies, very similar to fruit flies, but they have these elaborate pictures, these designs on their wings. They look almost like stained glass. And they have these very interesting and elaborate courtship dances that you see usually in higher organisms like birds. And there, there was a couple of scientists in Hawaii from the University of Hawaii had been studying them for decades. And just moments before... They were listed as an endangered species. One of these scientists discovered that this a byproduct between the Hawaiian picture wings and their host plant. So as it's feeding on its host plant, it would redu- release some other materials. It was sort of its waste products, etc. Actually contained compounds that could have medicinal value. These species were on the brink of the extinction when they found them. And he makes this discovery that they have properties that make him wonder. He's in investigating this now. It's all under trade secret protection, etc. To see if they might be helpful in finding cures for cancer and West Nile virus, even AIDS. On the brink of extinction, literally within six months of that discovery, the species was officially declared endangered after a several-year wait. So there's all kinds of examples of how these these particular types of species may hold answers or provide answers to questions which we haven't even thought to ask yet. I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the species that you can find in the GGNRA here. The brown pelican we talked about a little bit already. The brown pelican, anybody here not seen a brown pelican before in their life? Has anybody failed to see a brown pelican? Anybody unsure? You can raise your hand if you're unsure. Everybody's seen the brown pelican, maybe a little bit unsure. The brown pelican today is essentially ubiquitous, can be found throughout the GGNRA, throughout its historic range. But it wasn't always the case. In the 1970s, it had a population collapse. There was a combination of disturbance and destruction of its nest sites. It has it's a, It nests colonially, so it has... Uh, if you disturb, um, they'll nest in big flocks, and if you disturb their nesting sites, they'll all just fly away. It can cause disturbance for the entire breeding um, year. But not only that, not only was it the disturbance and destruction of these, hab- these nest sites, but also DDT had fatally weakened its eggshells. As we use DDT to eliminate agricultural and other pests, this was working its way into a variety of birds, of course, the the bald eagle is even even more famous example of this. Now off the list of endangered species, another success story. DDT was was working its way through the brown pelican population as well and uh, affecting its survival. Today, um, in the 70s, I get a little graph of this here. This is a population trajectory of the brown pelican. You can see down here, Endangered Species Act passed in 73, GGNRA created in 1972, DDT banned right around the same time. It was really hitting this low point. People were concerned. 
that they, the species just might not survive, but it's had an exponential population increase, and they're essentially everywhere. You can even see there's a few hanging around the Bay Area right now. Uh, most of them have migrated south. But you can see them almost throughout the entire year, and when they're present during the summertime, they're essentially everywhere. A wonderful success story to tell about the endangered species and the park. This species is likely to come off the Endangered Species Act list this year. There was a petition filed to do just that, with the Fish and Wildlife Service. So we're anticipating we'll have, uh, if you want to check this species off, you're going to have to act quickly because you may not have all year to do it for the big year. Now this is another species I mentioned earlier. This is the raven's manzanita. Is anybody here familiar with a man named Peter Raven? Anybody heard of Peter Raven? A couple of you. Peter Raven is a relatively well-known and eminent biologist who's actually a San Francisco native. He now runs the Missouri Botanical Garden. He gives talks you know, with so, sort of like this in much bigger areas, usually um, very well-known botanist. And he is also, as I mentioned, a San Francisco native who discovered when he was a child here in, while wandering through the Presidio this species of manzanita that had not been previously described by science. So it's named after him, Peter Raven, Raven's Manzanita. Sometimes its common name is also the Presidio Manzanita. They're kind of used interchangeably based on its location as well as its discoverer. Scientific name, though, always contains the Raven Eye uh, subspecies name in honor of, of Peter Raven. Peter Raven was exploring this park and found the Raven's Manzanita in the 1940s or 50s. At the time he discovered the species, it was the last one standing. We know from historic records, because folks can go back and take a look at collections made by other botanists of species that they either had inadequately described or failed to put the proper taxonomic subsystem on their, their names in these collections, that there used to be many more Raven's Manzanita throughout San Francisco. But the Raven's Manzanitas in these other places were destroyed as San Francisco was developed. Portions of the Richmond, um, even down near the Mint, near sort of the DuBose area, known to have locations of this particular species of manzanita wiped from the face of the planet before it was even formally described as a species. One individual left on the planet at the time that Peter Raven discovered it. It's the only one we know of. Therefore, it doesn't have anything to sexually reproduce with. It's really the last stand for the raven's manzanita. Fortunately, this particular species can survive by taking cuttings of the plant. You can plant them around and sort of grow, create new growth. And researchers have done this to try and preserve, put a sort of safety net around the last wild plant. The last wild plant um, is in an undisclosed location. Not to disclose, but they've put a little safety blanket around it by planting these other additional individuals, but they're genetically the same. It's still the same individual. It's just a clone. Now, there's one researcher in the park, works for the Parks Conservancy, actually, who's noticed, noticed that although, as far as anyone can tell, the raven's manzanita isn't able to sexually reproduce, it does produce seeds, which indicates that it is sort of pollinizing itself. But these seeds, as far as anyone knows, aren't capable of germinating. All kinds of different experiments have been run in these seeds. No one has been successful in waking them from dormancy and helping this plant recover by creating new, new individuals. One researcher thinks she may have an idea about how to do this by using specific smoke treatments on the seeds that she's been able to collect and see if that might trigger a response from these seeds to wake from its dormancy and essentially bring the species back from almost the dead. It's essentially a ghost right now. So when you have a species like this that's so close to the brink of extinction and requires a really highly technical set of skills and experiments to help recover, it's hard to try and figure out what the public ought to do to help the species survive. And as we're coming up with the list of 33 things people can do to help these species survive, we, we had a real dilemma about the raven's manzanita. What can we do? We don't even want to tell them expressly where the plant is, let alone get them involved in, you know, smoke treatments, etc., for the last remaining seeds of the species. So what we decided to do was direct people to help ensure that the raven's manzanita fate never befalls another species that's endemic to San Francisco by volunteering with San Francisco's Natural Areas Program. San Francisco still has a few places outside the ownership of the federal government that contain the last wild vestiges of what was once here. And the Natural Areas Program is this progressive plan that the city government has put together to help preserve these last places and its wild character. 
So to help the Ravens Manzanita and check that helping activity off your list, you have to go volunteer with the Natural Areas Program. And that reminds me, for the brown pelican, the re- recovered species, we, uh, we said, well, there isn't a lot left to do to recover the species. So what we did, let's, we thought, let's give people an action that would not only benefit the brown pelican, but also a wide variety of other, of other species in the GGNRA. And so the action item for the brown pelican you can see in your checklist to participate in Coastal Cleanup Day on a beach within the GGNRA and help restore and protect and clean up some of those areas that are both habitat for the brown pelican and a wide variety of other species, including us, at least when it's sunny. This is the California sea otter. Who doesn't love the California sea otter, right? This wonderfully cute species, all covered in fur, and that fur actually was almost its demise. Unlike other marine mammals that rely on a thick layer of blubber to keep warm in the cold ocean currents we have off here, off of California, the the sea otter maintains a different strategy. Their strategy is to grow hair that is so thick and dense that it's able to repel the water even without the help of a lot of blubber to keep them warm. Now that was very useful and a very good strategy. In fact, sea otters were essentially ubiquitous in San Francisco Bay even for a long period. Can you imagine there was a time that sea otter, you could walk out on a pier here in San Francisco or in Berkeley and there'd be sea otters there. I mean, today you think of them almost... They're almost defined as part of Monterey County or the Monterey Bay, just not even in the mindset of most people. But there was a time when sea otters were, th- were found throughout San Francisco Bay, fairly ubiquitous along the coasts of, of Western North America, decimated by the very thing that kept them alive in the ocean. Fur traders were also very interested in having this fur for themselves. And they essentially clubbed and killed and trapped sea otters to the brink of extinction. In fact, They were thought to be extinct. The only reason they survived today is they missed a spot. Placed off the coast, a wild coastline of Big Sur, a small remnant population of sea otters survived. And that population forms the basis of the recovery that's happening out in Monterey Bay. Now, one of my dreams is to see the sea otter return to San Francisco Bay, and, and it's almost happening. The sea otter population around Monterey Bay has been growing, not as fast as we'd like. In some years, the death rate has been exceeding the birth rate, somewhat disconcerting, so we aren't having a clean trajectory. But nonetheless, it has grown. There's about 3,000 or so sea otters in the, in, in the California sea otter population. And regularly, every year, a sea otter, usually a rogue male looking to expand its territory, comes up from Monterey Bay and sneaks around into the Golden Gate, and you'll find one in San Francisco Bay. That's the opportunity you have to see a sea otter in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. It'll be frolicking offshore, as usually these rogue males are sort of just exploring their own environment. Right? Now, today, sea otters aren't being hunted for their fur. But they nonetheless face threats, and the primary reason the species is, is dying and the primary cause of mortality is disease. And in particular, there's a disease caused by a microorganism called Toxoplasma gondii, which is really having a, exacting a major toll on sea otters. Now, scientists for a long time were unsure about how Toxoplasma gondii was getting into the marine environment because typically it's a terrestrial disease. You'll see it in terrestrial animals. Even humans can, co- can contact it. So they didn't understand why these sea otters were getting infected with this organism, which, which causes a sort of encephalitis, it's sort of a brain rot in these sea otters. They had no clue, and then some researchers discovered that this particular microorganism can complete its life cycle and reach a stage, the egg stage or oocyte stage, only in cats. This includes feral and house cats, but also bobcats, mountain lions, etc. And what they believe is happening is that it'll reach this egg stage in cats. The cats will defecate, and that will either run off or be directly flushed, if you have flushable kitty litter, into sewer systems. This egg stage is strong enough to survive water treatment facilities, or to be strong enough to just run into the ocean environment directly. And that eventually gets it into the marine environment and into the sea otters where the encephalitis occurs. Odd connection. One of the major reasons sea otters are dying is from this disease that's really a terrestrial disease. So the action item to help save sea otters is to address this by ensuring that you never flush 
your kitty litter. If you don't have a cat, ask someone else to do the same so we can try and send these particular microorganisms into a landfill where they'll be less likely to enter the marine environment. Someday we'll restore sea otters to San Francisco Bay. Once we get the bay clean enough, they'll be back. They want to come. So here's a little picture of the sea otters population again, and you can see how some of these rules like the Endangered Species Act are really starting to help benefit species that have been on the brink of extinction. Again, you have the Endangered Species Act passed way over here in in, um, 1973. Sea otters get listed, and we've had a relatively steady trajectory of increase in the sea otters population. And here's another little cute one. We actually had a trip out to go see this particular species at our kickoff party for the big year on January 6th. This is the western snowy plover. Western snowy plover is this diminutive little beautiful puffball of feathers that's found along the coasts of western North America down into Baja, California, very much imperiled because the habitats it needs to survive and nest are also the places that we like to hang out and have a good time. And it creates a conflict between our recreational opportunities and the bare necessities and needs of the western snowy plover. The western snowy plover hangs out on dune and sand ecosystems, and it creates little nests that are really nothing more than a small cup or depression in the sand, and it relies on the cryptic coloration both of the bird itself. You can see it kind of blends in pretty well with the sand over here on this side of the, of the slide, but also of its eggs and sort of hopes that nothing else will see it. It's one of the species that if a predator or some sort of a threat approaches a nest, either, either willingly or uh, un- unwittingly, um, it does the, the broken wing display and tries to distract the predator away from the nest. It sort of really relies on, on camouflage to survive. Unfortunately, doesn't always work. It doesn't work with a variety of different threats. So, for example, if you're driving your car on the beach, it might not work. If you're driving, which is a big problem in certain portions of its range, not so much here, habitat destruction has taken a major toll on it. Even just building highways along coasts, which stop the formation of dunes, has been a big problem for the snowy plover. Um, Degradation of its habitat with invasive species, and then even the trash we leave on the beach, which in turn subsidizes some of the, the snowy plover's predators, ravens in particular, and then gives the ravens extra energy and more opportunities to pick off the eggs and the snowy plovers themselves when we're not even on the beach. All of these things are major threats to the, to, the, to the western snowy plover, and if we're not more cautious about how we interact with this species, we're going to lose it from San Francisco. There's maybe 30, 35 species, uh, individuals of the snowy plover in San Francisco County. You can find them at Ocean Beach and at Chrissy Field in the Wildlife Protection Area. And both of those places were impacted by the oil spill, the Costco Busan oil spill. There was actually several snowy plovers that were seen with oiling on them. It's unclear right now if they're going to survive. Uh, there's some concern that even small amounts of oiling can lead to the demise of these birds because they'll either ingest the toxic material or it'll keep them from maintaining homeostasis because their feathers are no longer capable of keeping out the cold environment. So there's a lot of concern that we could lose the snowy plover altogether. And oddly enough, oddly enough, the single most important recreational threat facing the Golden Gate National Recreation Area's snowy plovers is off-leash dogs. And the reason off-leash dogs are such a big recreational threat is because even if they think that they're doing something that's fun or playing with these birds, the snowy plovers don't necessarily think of it that way. And the concern is that because the dogs will chase snowy plovers repeatedly over and over again, and there's so many off-leash dogs at the park, they face almost constant harassment, that there may be a moment where the snowy plovers, even if they're not captured by these dogs, they'll just decide, you know what, we've had enough. We're going to move on and try and find someplace else. For example, there's a a large population of snowy plovers in the scheme of things in, in Don Edwards National Park, much larger. We don't have any breeding birds in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area of western snowy plovers right now, even though it's arguably our most protected landscape around the Bay Area, precisely because we're disturbing them so much. We aren't giving them enough chance to stick around and, and create nests in the G-Generate. And we need to change that if we anticipate 
that will keep this species around for future generations to enjoy. So the action item for the western snowy plover is to ensure that when you go to Ocean Beach and Chrissy Field, you leash your dog to make sure that they don't chase snowy plovers. If you don't have a dog, ask someone else you know with a dog or someone you see out on the beach to do the same. Now, there's actually a comment period open right now that the National Park Service has open right now until the end of the day today, until midnight tonight. If you go to regulations.gov today, by the end of the day, you can type in snowy plover and you'll find a regulation to actually require leash law enforcement at both Chrissy Field and Ocean Beach. And you can type in some comments and say you support that regulation, etc. Regulations.gov. By, the, by midnight tonight, your comments will get in. A couple more interesting stories to tell. This is the showy Indian clover. Perhaps one of the most interesting stories of them all, because it touches not only on why species are extinct, but also how we figure out when species are close to the brink and when they've actually tipped over the edge. The showy Indian clover has been declared extinct in the wild at least twice. Once fairly common throughout California, it was found in dozens of counties throughout the state, it was drawn down to just a few populations around uh, a, f- a few Bay Area counties, and then uh, they were d- those, those last populations were developed, and people thought they were gone. This was before they were even protected under the Endangered Species Act. And then in the mid-'90s, a, a guy named Peter Connor actually found, rediscovered the species on some private lands in Marin that were slated for development. The Endangered Species Act has a slight loophole in it which permits the destruction of listed plants if they're on private lands, as long as you comply with all other state and federal laws. So there was a real threat that this particular, these particular plants could just be developed without consequence. But Peter Connor raced to the scene, tried to work with the landowners to ensure that these plants would be preserved long enough for him to collect some seeds and so he could try and germinate another population. And, and it, they, they cooperated. They cooperated with him, and he was able to collect some seeds and established a population in a lab near Bodega Bay, where he's found. The next year, he returned to the site, and the plants were gone. This was, they hadn't been developed yet, but they were just no longer there. So the place was developed. We had some of these species um, in a lab, but again, declared extinct in the wild until Peter Connor again found some plants in Marin County in a separate piece of private property. That, those plants still are in existence The private property landowner so far has been cooperating with the preservation of those species, but we don't know how long that's going to last, especially, you know, maybe now with with home prices declining a little bit, the pressure may be a little lighter than it was a few years ago. But nonetheless, um, other than the goodwill of these individuals, nothing left in place to keep these particular plants around. Now, in the GGNRA, we have historic records of of the showy Indian clover being present in the park over near Stinson Beach. And there's good habitat over there. And there may still be a seed bank. Sometimes there'll be, the plants will drop seeds and they'll lay dormant for a long time. So the reason they're still considered present in the GGNRA is from a historic record that a botanist put together about 100 years ago. And there's hope that if the conditions are right and we're able to restore the species, we can, we can re-germinate the species or perhaps even transplant some of the ones into its historic habitat that it's been lost. But again, it brings in this whole idea. It's really difficult to sort of prove a negative and show that these species are gone. And the big year helps explore these very ideas by thinking about these, these issues um, and, and thinking about absence and presence as we take people out to see these species throughout the park. Now, the showy Indian clover has a particular action item that's keyed specifically to the legislative loophole that needs to be fixed. It's a, re- it's a request to call your public officials and ask them to provide equal protection to plants under the Endangered Species Act by closing this loophole and making it illegal for people to kill plants, endangered plants, on their private lands in the same way that it's illegal to kill a marbled murelet or a brown pelican or a snowy plover or a sea otter on private lands that you may hold. Now we have, as I mentioned, there's a wide variety of things we have planned for the big year throughout, throughout 2008. These include taking people out to restore habitats, and also taking them out on, on trips to just see endangered species. We actually have some planned for this weekend that you may be interested in. Three different trips on the 26th. 
We have a trip to help restore habitat for the San Francisco garter snake, and also the California red-legged frog is found in this area. We just went out last weekend for the big year, and uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before. We had about 80 people out helping restore habitat for the San Francisco garter snake on this particular trip. Same day, we're having a trip to go help a couple of the plants, the Presidio clarkia, which I mentioned briefly, and the Marin dwarf, dwarf flax. They have habitat in San Francisco still, endangered species right here in our backyard. And there's a, there's a couple of folks at the Park Service, including Lou Stringer, who are working to restore some of the populations so that we can have additional security that these species will be around forever. We also have a trip to do, this is the more speculative one, is some of these species are very, very difficult to see. They're so rare, and the opportunities to see them come along so rarely. Uh, Alan Hopkins, though, who's one of the great birders in the state of California, is leading a trip, a sea watch, to go out to um, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, probably out by Land's End, and set up some scopes, some spotting scopes, and see if we might be lucky enough to see a marble murelet flying offshore, or maybe a sea otter, or even a Stellar sea lion, another very tough species to see in the park. And then the other trip we have going on on Sunday is a trip to go out and see coho. We just did this trip this past week. As I mentioned, coho numbers are down unexpectedly so. We were hoping, everyone was hoping for a really big year, for the big year and for the coho as well. Um, We went out last Sunday and we did not see any spawners. And there's been maybe fewer than 10 spawners seen all year in West Marin so far, when they had last, uh, in the last cycle in 2005, over 100. So nobody knows what's going on, but they're, they're, they're a great concern. We did see some small um, salmon, both coho salmon and also uh, the steelhead as well, in the stream that were very likely hatches from last year. So you can still see some fish out there, but the spawners just aren't coming. And we don't know entirely why that's the case. Now, the big year is completely volunteer-run. I'm volunteering my time. I have a day job, as, as Carrie alluded to, teaching over here at the law school at, at Golden Gate University. We could always use more help. If you're interested in helping either with fundraising, either by donating or helping raise funds from other individuals, helping us with outreach and publicity, just doing things like this, talking to other folks about the Golden Gate National Recreation Area and its endangered species, or helping us just get the word out by publishing ads or putting out notices in various community papers. We'd love your help, and you can get a hold of us at the website down here at the GGNRA Big Year. And with that, that's everything I have. I'd be happy to open it up to questions. You've been listening to a talk by Brent Plater, The Race Against Time, the, the 2008 GGNRA Endangered Species Big Year. I'm Kerry Curtis, and now we have the opportunity for um, questions from the audience. And uh, while Faith is moving the mic around, I'm going to start this sign-up list. And, and if you want to, if you want to get emails from me about these events, uh, sign up. If you don't want to get emails from me, don't sign it. Thanks. Hi, I have two questions for you, if that's all right. Uh, first, isn't it? Kind of a contradiction in terms, uh, the recreate the GGNRA, the recreation area, and all the work done with endangered species. So this is a question that comes up frequently. It's a good question. People sometimes anticipate that because the Golden Gate National Recreation Area is called a recreation area rather than a national park, that it somehow implies that we should be managing it differently than even Point Reyes or other national parks. And if you take a look at the legislative history, well, as a first step to answering that question, there are a wide variety of different terms that are applied to units of the national park system, from historic sites to seashores to lakeshores, etc. Congress has said repeatedly that despite these different names, each unit of the National Park Service is required to be managed under the same level of protection. And this level of protection is fairly unique within the federal administrative agencies. It's a requirement that these lands be managed with a non-impairment standard. That is, we need to preserve the values and resources that are found in all of these areas so that future generations can enjoy them. Now, the Park Service itself has a little bit of a contradictory mandate because on the one hand, they're required to preserve these resources for future generations, while at the same time providing opportunities for existing current Americans to enjoy them. And that's where some of the conflict comes together. Now, the question that the GGNRA is somehow different from all the other national parks 
has actually been raised in a variety of different contexts, and most importantly, in front of the Ninth Circuit of the United States of California, uh, the United States, now the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And there, a few years ago, a mountain biking group challenged restrictions on mountain bikes, claiming that because the GGNRA is in fact a recreation area, rather than a national park, the park superintendent wasn't allowed to regulate mountain biking as stringently as perhaps the national park superintendent in Yosemite would be able to do. The court rejected this argument outright. In fact, it, the courts rejected it twice. The district court rejected it in a fairly lengthy opinion. The Ninth Circuit rejected it without any additional comment. It just said, see the lower court opinion. It's an argument that's been raised and rejected every time it, there's been an opportunity for courts to get their hands on it. It's unlikely that that's going to change though, this perception is going to change until the GGNRA changes its name. There's actually a movement to make that happen with a small legislative change so that we'll refer to the park as the Golden Gate National Parks, plural, to reflect the diversity of landscapes that are within the GGNRA, includes Muir Woods, Alcatraz, etc. And we'll probably see that happen in the near future. Question Thank one. Yeah. And then I've been concerned for years about my kitty poop. And um, I've... I, I actually went and asked a number of different agencies, what do you do with the kitty poop? And nobody seemed to be able to give me a straight answer, including the uh, whatever that uh, friends of the seawater. They didn't have an answer for me either. Um, if I don't flush it, and I'm not talking about the litter, I'm talking about the poop. If I don't flush it, what do I do? Do I put it in the green barrel or the black barrel or the blue barrel? I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody's going to want poop in the barrel. Mm. Yeah, you should put it in the in the trash bin. I don't know where you, where you live precisely, but I don't know what color your trash bin might be here in San Francisco. Okay, so you what you put it in your trash bin. Don't put it in the compost bin. There has been theoretically um, animal feces, you know, dog poop cat poop could be composted, but there's concerns right now and regulations that need to be addressed about the possibility of disease transmission in some of this compost, because the ultimate product can get reused in a variety of different contexts, and so they don't have a complete understanding right now about how that might affect their ability to compost some of these other types of materials like kitty, um, cat poop and dog poop. So for now, send it to the landfill where it's less likely to end up in the marine environment and you'll be doing the sea otter a favor. In fact, there's a state law which requires labeling on kitty litter now recommending just that. So the action item is consistent with the state law requesting people to make sure they landfill rather than flush the kitty poop. My pleasure. I always love talking about cat poop. <laughs> Um, I was just going to comment in response to that. I think another another form of recreation that doesn't get like com- doesn't get considered recreation is people going out to see these birds or to um, try to try to see the sea otter. And I think that you know that's also at play within that that title. And I guess I also wanted to ask about you know what would it actually take to restore the sea otter to the bay besides the cat poop issue. So two interesting comments. I mean, on the one hand, there is a there is this conflict, right? On the one hand, these species are so imperiled that maybe what we ought to be doing is just putting up a big fence around them and making sure that nobody can do them any more harm by keeping people as far away as possible. Well, there's a couple of concerns with that, and one is it's somewhat inconsistent with the National Park Service's mandate, as I just, just discussed. They have this requirement not only to preserve these species, but to provide, within reason, certain types of recreational experiences for people to try and get to know these species and, and have a chance to enjoy the park. What we did in creating the Endangered Species Big Year to address this very concern, a very real concern, is, if you, and if you see on the back of your checklist, we have this these ethical principles that we've put together in conjunction with the National Park Service's resource management staff, which define ways to responsibly visit the park and ensure that you don't do any harm to the species that are found there. And these are really common sense things, you know, like staying on trail, make sure you don't have invasive species seeds all over yourself as you, when you go into the national park, keep your clothes and your boots clean. Um, and just, you know, generally being a good neighbor to the national parks uh, and the species that live there. Now, in terms of how, do, how would we go about restoring 
sea otters of San Francisco Bay, I can tell you, first of all, what won't work, and that's a translocation. There have been some attempts to expand the sea otters range previously in other places where they would take sea otters from Monterey Bay and just physically relocate them to other places to try and spawn these new populations. Most of those attempts have failed. And it's also it's pretty tough on the individuals that have to be captured and relocated. Some of them try to return to the places they were taken from. It can be arduous. So definitely a translocation is out of the question. But what we need to do is restore the bay itself, make it clean and, and habitable enough so that some of the in, some of the that there's enough of a food base for the sea otter and enough cover, other essential elements of its habitat are found in the bay again. So what would that take? It would take a lot of work. It would probably take a multi-year, multi-agency approach to, and, a, and a commitment to see that happen. Um, but I think, I think it's something, you know, it's not going to happen in the context of a year, but um, I think it's something we'll see eventually because certainly the sea otter has that in mind already. Um, I'm just asking you to validate what I think I heard you say. Uh, San Francisco is part of the eighth most biodiverse region in the world is that right um it's a component species it's a component so the bay area is the sixth most one of six important biological diversity hotspots in the nation so it's they aren't within those six they weren't expressly ranked they were just six uh, important ones it's kind of like you know you love all your kids equally right these are six places of very important uh great importance for biodiversity now the bay area is part of what's called the california floristic province which is a much larger area than just san francisco and the bay but includes san francisco and the bay and that area is one of is one of the is the eighth most important biological diversity hotspot in the world for both diversity that that is there in the landscape in the floristic province but also because of the threats facing the area so we have massive urbanization and development throughout California. And is there any uh, idea why the coho aren't spawning? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. It's still a little early to say, but um, so we, we don't have we don't have a good idea about why that's happening. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> so we've lost a lot of species in uh, future years. What uh, would be the uh, detrimental impact if we lose half on your list? Yes, yeah, excellent question. This gets into this whole, like, who cares scenario, right? So to me, the most compelling reason to care about these species and keep them around is because of our moral obligation to these other species. To me, it's really the true test of our moral character as our own species. I mean, because it's easy, I think for most people anyways, to be good stewards and good neighbors and good people to the people that are most like them, your family. It's easier to be good to them and care about them morally than your neighbors. It's more easy to be careful and care about them than somebody in another country. And I think if you take that to its logical extension, the true test of who we are as a as, a, as moral agents, is how we treat those things that are least like us. And it's really hard to think of anything that's less like us than the California freshwater shrimp or the raven's manzanita or even the brown pelican. And how we treat them really reflects about our own moral character. And to me, that's something that I'm very much concerned about, how we think about ourselves and as moral agents in the planet. But it's hard to say how it will reflect. I think I know, I know that if these species were gone and the Endangered Species Act wasn't here and the park wasn't here. The lands that we have protected and the beauty that we have around the Bay Area in San Francisco wouldn't be here right now. If it wasn't for the Endangered Species Act and the existence of endangered species on San Bruno Mountain, that would be developed right now. It would be a big hill of ticky-tacky houses. If it wasn't for the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, it's very likely that we would have, instead of the Marin Headlands, a large development along the scale and density of what we see in San Francisco. So the park and these species itself, I think, are part now of who we are and how we think about ourselves and our place in this particular environment. Now, and there may also, as Congress said, be other reasons we don't even know uh, how to ask about to save these species. They may be resources that um, help us solve problems we we don't know about in the future. Those are all important reasons as well. 
Uh, I'm interested in the idea of restoring the bay to where the sea otters would come back. I understand that their primary food source is mollusks, such as abalone. I wonder if you'd have to reintroduce abalone. And what about um, uh, things like uh, pesticides and the like that seem to be giving cancer to the sea lions? Would that affect the, um, uh, the mollusks and the, and the sea otters? Yeah, so certainly, um, well, there's one of the questions we have, the, the San Francisco Bay is filled with invasive species of all kinds, including a lot of different mollusks. And one question we wonder is, can these species that aren't endemic to San Francisco Bay actually support the sea otter if they were to come back? It appears they must be eating something, at least temporarily, while they're visiting the Bay Area, which they tend to do every year. So it may be that even though some of the indigenous species like abalone, black abalone, for, as a, for, for example, is an endangered species, will probably be added to the list of endangered species if we do the big year again. It's just recently being added to the list of endangered species um, that can be present in the park. All these things are at very low populations, and certainly restoring them would help ensure that the sea otter sticks around. But it sort of gets right to the point is in order for sea otters to be restored to San Francisco Bay, the San Francisco Bay needs to be restored. And in order to do that, we need to think about every stage of its life cycle and every habitat need it has, including ensuring that the invertebrates that form the basis of most of its food supply are also in good supply. Let's give a big hand to Brent Plater. You've been listening to a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Brent Plater speaking on the 2008 Endangered Species Big Year of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. With that, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, observing its 150th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.